Hello and welcome to another episode of That's What People Do. You are joined by me, Ryan McGowan, and as always, James Kay. How are you, buddy? I'm very well, thank you, Ryan. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very, very good. Um, as some listeners, you'll be aware by now if you uh, listened to last uh, episode, which was two weeks ago, um, we are recording all on one day. Uh, we're covering August because James is currently trekking across Scotland. Uh, I'll, be in the, I'll be in the Highlands somewhere at the minute. Yeah, he'll be enjoying it, so leave him alone. <laughs> uh, so yeah, this week uh, we are talking about the Essex Boys. Uh, some of you may know that term. Uh, I'm excited because it's my hometown. Uh, and James has never heard of them at all. No, never. Uh, so, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. I am just going to get into it. Now, on December 7th, 1995, farmers Peter Theobald and Ken Jiggins found a blue Range Rover left on a dirt track in Rettendon, Essex. The three people in the car were slumped over, peacefully sleeping, or so it looked. Upon closer inspection, their heads had massive gaping holes in them. What they had found were the bodies of infamous drug dealers Craig Rolfe, Pat Tate and Tony Tucker. This is the story of the infamous Rettendon murders. Now firstly, we actually have to talk about my hometown, Basildon. After the Second World War, the East End of London was facing a serious housing crisis since it had been bombed to shit by the Germans. So many people were homeless, the government had an idea. They would bring the city to the countryside. They were going to build several new towns in boroughs surrounding London, such as Essex. And the purpose was for East Enders to get themselves out of London to new homes to start a new life in what is effectively the countryside. A chance to start again. And one of those Basildon, one of those towns was Basildon Newtown. That was the official name of it, Basildon Newtown. Now it is simply known as Basildon. Because um, it's no longer a new town. Because it's no longer a new town. It is 71 years old now. Um, interestingly, you know when we think of EastEnders, we think of like the programme, EastEnders, or we think uh-huh. of um, Only Force and Horses. And they're always mm-hmm. grafting. They're always at a market trying to fucking barter someone for like, I don't know, a pound of apples or whatever it is. You know, someone's screaming at market going, oh, pound of pears, pound of pears, all that kind of shite. Um it's half true in that when EastEnders moved to Basildon for the first time, everyone was like, look at this fantastic new town we've built you. It's got a shopping centre with all the amenities you could possibly need. It's got a lovely town square where you can hang out and do whatever you like. And all the, all the EastEnders were like, where's the market? And they were like, <laughs> what do you mean? Where, where's the market? Where do I buy my shit? And they went, We've got. A, we've literally built you a supermarket, like a shopping mall, full of shops. I'm like, yeah, but I can't barter with him. He's got set prices. <laughs> Bloke at market might sell me fucking five apples or whatever it is, silly, for nothing or something like that. I can't barter in fucking Asda or whatever it were at the time. They absolutely hated it, and I can just imagine being the town planner for Basildon, and then being told by EastEnders. We don't like it. Where's the market? And you're like, fuck's sake, I'm trying to do something good here. I'm trying to modernise your <laughs> life. And they just weren't having it at all. No, so, uh, <laughs> because of it, um, they then opened up Basildon Market, uh, which is still going today. Like, it's still on. And 
lots of Pasadonians use it all the time. In fact, I walked past it earlier today uh, before we started recording. Um, and it, it's just as busy as it ever was. It's a wee bit more modernised now. They've got new like huts and everything to get and shelter for the, the, the weather. But yeah, 70 years on and Basildon Basel people who are... Uh, uh, what's the word? They are descendants of EastEnders, generally most of them, still use the market all the time. Mm. Now... Fair enough. Yeah, it's quite a fun thing. I like it. I like it almost that they keep their heritage in a way. Yeah, I mean, you've got... Yeah, uh, there's a big argument at the minute that the high street's dying, isn't it? Because obviously, like younger people of society, we're all online shoppers now. Like I said to you uh, earlier that I need to go out today and do some shopping. Me going out was going to a friend's house and sitting on Amazon and just ordering things. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, that it's... is my version of shopping. Like haggling with someone terrifies me. Oh God, yeah. Even when you're in like Spain or Turkey, where they expect you mm. to haggle, I'm like, how much is that? And they go, oh, it's uh, twenty euros. And I go. Okay, and they're like, brilliant. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, I was expecting to get a get away with twelve, but you've given me twenty. Fine, all right. I'm like, yeah, okay. Instead, like my sisters will be like the ones that go, uh, no, it's worth ten at best, and their bloke will be like, no, what are you talking about? It's worth fifteen. And I'm like, how are you doing this? I don't get it. Can't do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have the confidence. No, no. I mean, I'd end up somehow paying more than the asking price. Yeah, I end up giving him more money and the shoes that I was about to buy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, if you ask anyone from Southern Essex, and I, I do specify that, Southern Essex, for the most part, Essex is countryside. There is nothing in Essex apart from sporadic towns and villages. The only part of Essex that's actually built up is the southern part where most of the East Enders live, the old lot. Um, now, if you ask anyone from Southern Essex, where does East London end and Essex start? You'll get a mixed answer. Some will say mm. that towns such as Romford, Upminster and Ilford, somewhere that you know, James. Yeah, shit all. Yeah. Some will say that those places are a part of London, whereas others, generally people who live in Essex, will say that it is also part of Essex. Uh, and then people who live in places like Ilford don't really get a say. <laughs> like, no, oh. I, n- I was never understood. I think it was, it's on the border, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. And that's the point. There's always been a blurred border between London and Essex, and where the East Enders moved to Essex, uh, it got a hell of a lot more blurred. You see, mm. pe- people would be back and forth all the time. Like They may have moved to Essex, but their life is still in East London. They still have maybe a stall, or they've got a job, or they know someone, or someone might have friends or family that still lives in Barking or Mile End. So they're constantly back and forth all the time, and the culture began to mix. Um, and we've got, like, you know, Essex uh, and East End sort of clashing and coming together and what you get is this culture clash and even even our accents began to change um, now for a lot of people if you're if you're if you're, if you're an English listener I just sound like I'm either from Essex or down south right uh, and yeah, if you're general London yeah and if you're from like out of the out of the UK listening you will not have a clue about this right but um I've actually got what's called an estuary accent. I don't have an Essex accent and I don't have uh, a London accent. What I've got is a mixture of the two, which they call estuary. So towns such as uh, Tilbury, Grays, Basildon, Pitsy, all those sort of areas that are along sort of the the, the River Thames, uh, they're mostly settled by old EastEnders coming from uh, London um, when these new towns were built. 
and they mixed with the locals and what we got was a mixture of accents well there you go we're kind of a hybrid yeah we're kind of a hybrid so if you actually listen like an essex accent is uh well this stereotypical essex accent that most people in the uk are aware of is a forced accent it's not a real accent um Mm. it's a dumbing down of their own uh but for the most part essex people talk rather normal and then my lot where i'm from have got like a more of an east end twang to the way they speak in fact i knew someone who was from wales who called me mr london uh because as far as they were concerned i was the most cockney person they'd ever heard yeah i mean if they've never heard of cockney before i've heard of people more cockney than you but you've definitely got a like not a cockney but like a you can tell you from that neck of the woods aye well but then equally i'm sure people can hear me and think um he sounds a bit midlands you do sound a bit Midlands. <laughs> mm. See, to me, I don't. I mean, to me, I can't hear it, and to you, you can't, won't be able to hear your accent. I think I speak perfect uh, RP all the time, no, but I don't. don't. But don't. I do hear it if I'm like if I'm talking to someone really who is a Brummy, and the yeah. conversation's getting like a bit heated, and it's like quite a, like a passionate conversation, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Then I can like hear it in my own voice. Well, it's one of those as well that um, generally people when they drink their accents, their true accents tend to come out more. Yeah, yeah. And that's I mean, simply, I hate it. That's simply because uh, we learn how to talk um, from like our parents, so we begin to copy them. And muscle memory, you're doing the same uh, shapes with your mouth to make a particular accent. But when you drink, you get lazy and you start to slur, so it sounds worse. That's all it is. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah. Anyway, it wasn't just the accents uh, and family that bled across the border. Crime did too. Now, when you think of the East End of London in the 60s, you think of the Cray Twins, right? Most famous, mm-hmm. Ronnie and Reggie. Two of the most famous gangsters in British history. Now, everyone wanted to be involved with them in some way. And I say this because nearly every single person who was around the East End of London in the 60s has got a fucking story about the Crays. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Um, this is probably like a very regionalised episode right anyone listening from like essex or london will go oh fucking hell yeah 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 and people that maybe are outside of it maybe don't get it so much but i'm telling you now james every single person who is probably over 60 knew the craze like, oh yeah, yeah mm. no i've seen them i've seen them i work i worked with them once i knew someone who knew his fucking dog and you're like oh right really yeah okay yeah cool cool <laughs> cool I'm not, I'm not joking. I know the craze got around and I know they were big time or everything, but they hadn't met every single person in the East End, right? In fact, my own step-granddad, right, he recalls stories of singing in the pub that the twins' mum used to drink in and says on occasion they would pop in. And you're like, I believe ya, but then everyone does says the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they've all met. They're all best friends with them. Ah, oh, they've all met them. They've all worked with them. Um, but yeah, anyway... Because of this blurred border between the two places, business could easily be conducted away from the city over into the countryside of Essex and there was always a cousin or a friend who was able to help out since it all moved out there. And with their old East Ender influences, they're unlikely to grasp to the old bill, so they're much of a sure bet. Now, by the late 60s, the craze were gone, but the criminal influence wasn't. Hard men were looking to exploit the power vacuum and the cherry on top might just have been Essex and its new towns. See, in the East End, you've got established families, you've got established groups that have been around for decades, if not, you know, 100 years or so. Just sort of, you know who's who. 
Whereas these are new towns. They've just been, they're literally like not even 20 years old, some of them at this point. Ain't no one's proper established yet. So what you get is fucking loads of gangs just fighting it out, just trying to control an area. Hmm. Um, there's something weirdly like, what's the word? You know when people hype things up to be like really good when it probably shouldn't be really good? Uh, yeah, what do you mean? I don't know what the word is, but like gang culture in England, like you said, how everyone knows the Kratwins and stuff, everyone just like hypes it to the point of like, oh, this is awesome, when it's not really. So, um, almost like I said it, uh, like I said earlier, almost everyone who was around the East End when the Krays were there always says, oh, it was much safer back then when the Krays ran it. They always say it. I'm telling you now, they always say, oh, you could leave your back, you could leave your front door unlocked when the Krays were running around, all this like. And then they say, oh, when they left, it got worse. And you're like, yeah, I'm sure it did, because everyone was shit scared of them. And if anything happened to you, you couldn't go to the old bill. You had to just sort it out yourself. Yeah, it's like it's like where I'm from. Obviously, Birmingham, Peaky Blinders has become a massive thing. And you see people just strolling around dressed up as the Peaky Blinders, like a massive thing. But these people were not very nice people. No, no, not at all. These are not very nice people at all. I mean, there's the odd good story that comes out of it. So... Uh, I mentioned my step-granddad. Uh, he told me a story about the craze. Uh, like I said, he used to actually sing in this pub in the East End, right? Uh, where he claims that the craze mum used to drink. Now, mm. so far as this story goes, there was an old lady who used to come in and drink at the place. She used to come in and have a little sherry and sort of that be her night. Uh, she could not afford to pay her rent to the landlord anymore because, uh, I don't know for what reasons, but she just couldn't afford to pay the rent anymore. Um, now, she came in really crying and got all upset, um, saying that she'd been threatened eviction by the landlord. So she spoke to the, apparently, she spoke to the twins and was like, told them the story. And they said, don't worry, we've got your back. Supposedly, they went to the landlord and said, right, um, let's call her Margaret. Margaret, don't pay rent no more. Got it? And he was like, okay. And apparently, she didn't pay rent for the rest of her life. Fucking hell, fair play. I mean, if it's true, it's a good story. But like, they were only able to do that because they've been massive arseholes in the past and you know that if I say, no, fuck you, I need to make money, it's my own, it's my flat, they'll go, yeah. right, fine, well then let's let's take a finger or two then. I mean, I suppose they did do some good for the community. Yeah, yeah, but it's, I mean, we look at pirates as well now, we think of pirates as being like this fantastical people, but some of them were pricks. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. Now, towards the 80s, Basildon had gone from being a new town with hopes of becoming a place of the future with links to our European friends to a gangland battleground. But unlike the East End gangsters of old, this new generation weren't robbing banks and post offices with sawn-off shotguns. Their trade was in drugs, and the best place to peddle drugs was in the nightclubs. And Basildon's place to be was called Raquel's which is the most southern Essex London name you could ever name a nightclub, I think. Yeah, Raquel. I'm sure that's a character from Only Fools and Horses as well, isn't it? It is. She is the wife of Del Boy, Raquel. Um, now, Raquel's supposedly was quite a good club by those who used to go. Um, have you ever heard of Depeche Mode? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Depeche Mode are local to Basildon. They're all Basildon boys, and they used to play there quite often. Well, there you go. Yeah, as well as some other famous uh, singers and bands. Uh, and my mum, uh, who has 
had a few mentions on this podcast before. Uh, when I told her I was doing the Rettenden murders, um, and I was like, oh, do you, do you know of Raquel's, the nightclub that used to be in Basildon? And she was like, oh, yeah, I remember Raquel's. I remember going there. And I'm like, okay, excellent. Now, from what I've discovered when researching this was that my mum is a hell of a lot braver than I am because Raquel's nightclub was a hot spot for violence with gangs of lads trying to assert themselves. There were punters coming in with weapons like knives and even guns and some carried vials of acid to throw at people if they got into a fight. And my mum was like, oh, I remember Raquel's. It's a lovely joint. <laughs> was it though? <laughs> was it though? Now... The club at capacity could hold 600 people and doormen, remember, and even when they were interviewed, they went, I know this sounds like a lot, but there were literally fights of people like with a hundred, there were literally fights of like a hundred people outside the door mm. at any particular night. Just people just getting into fucking fights because they're all high, they're all fucking drunk, uh, they've all got weapons and they're all in rival gangs. So they're just yeah. getting fights about a hundred people and you just let it happen. What are you going to do? I mean, you can't, if a mass brawl kicks off, like, that's it. You've no. Got to, you've got to let it no. take place. Call the police and now, get out of there. One such group of lads that you'd find fighting at Raquel's was The Firm. Ooh. A gang consisting of around 80-odd Essex boys. Now, these were th- these guys were thugs. There's no two ways about it, right? These guys were thugs, and that is putting it nicely. One of The Firm's rivals uh, was going to be drinking in the Bull Pub on the outskirts of Basildon on a bank holiday Monday. So, the firm hatched a plan to jump him. The pub was packed with punters for bank holiday Monday, but that didn't stop them. They were like, no, fuck that. This is even better. This shows that we are tough guys who you can't mess with. They stormed the place with battens, knuckle dusters, and even machetes, and kicked the living shit out of the guy in front of everyone in the pub. And the only thing that stopped them was when the landlord of the pub locked the guy who was being beaten in the cellar just to try and stop it all. <laughs> that's fucking crazy. That is that is mental. Like, I don't know, some people are just desperate for violence, really. Yeah. See, the thing is, when we watch films like Green Street and Rise of the Foot Soldier or Essex Boys or whatever, and you just see all this mindless violence, and you think, oh, I mean, come on, you're just dramatising it. It can't be real. It turns out it kind of was real. People were that fucking mad and they would go that mindlessly crazy on some other people. Um, but yeah, it's um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. But violence and intimidation wasn't the only weapon in their arsenal. Uh, these guys in the firm weren't shy about committing murder. Kevin Whitaker was a Basildon local who owned the f- uh, who owed the firm some money. And he may have just been a little bit behind on his loan. See, one day they picked him up and drove out of town. Now, in the car, conversations went sour and Kevin was forcefully injected in his arm three times with a powerful drug called Special K, which is a mixture of veterinary drugs and cocaine. Lovely. And Kevin died Kevin died of a, an overdose in the car and then was just dumped on the roadside because of it. He just owed them money. That was it. Oh, it, it's a... It, people like put human life behind money and it's just a shame isn't it Cause it's also not really how is he supposed to, how is he supposed to pay you back if you kill him yeah it, it just 
voids the entire thing. You're never going to get your money back, and now you're wanted for murder. You've just done yourself dirty there. I know. It's ridiculous. Now, I will point out, uh, Kevin Whitaker's, uh death, I say death because officially it was um, overdose. He died of an overdose. Mm-hmm. Not It's not murder. Um, because they haven't been able to prove anything that he was murdered or forcefully overdosed. Um, they, as far as the police were concerned, there's no evidence to say that. They just think he did it to himself. Yeah. His mother, his mother and father were like, well, one, he's right-handed, so he couldn't have injected himself in the right hand with his fucking doing hand. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like He would have gone in the left hand. And apparently, as far as everyone who knew him, he was terrified of needles, so it's very unlikely he would have been overdosed, uh, injecting himself with needles. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, in my eyes, it's still mur- like I know the official death report is uh, overdose, but surely if someone has given you that overdose, yeah. But that's the problem is they don't, they they're not able to determine how he got the overdose, like who injected him or anything like that. They can't seem to determine that. Yeah, so that is a problem. officially. It's suicide of uh, an overdose. Well, not suicide, but like an you know, accidental death yeah. by overdose. But even though everyone fully knows that it wasn't. Yeah, exactly. As far as everyone locally is concerned, he was killed by the Essex boys, the firm. Yeah, but they can't prove it. No, exactly. Now, the leader of this lovely bunch of lads was a guy called Tony Tucker, a guy in his 30s, originally from Stratford in the East End, now living in Essex. Tucker ran a firm of bouncers working the doors at nightclubs across Essex and London, including Basildon's place to be, Raquel's. Being a bouncer during this time, let's be honest, it's a shady job. We've all heard of stories. We've all heard of stories of bouncers smashing the shit out of some bloke who's had way too many and is now giving it large. Uh We've all heard of that. Bouncers are scary fucking people, right? And it kind of makes sense to agree. That's kind of the point. It's a scary job that... I mean, I certainly wouldn't do it. Um, you get drunk, leery people asking you stupid questions or you'll get someone kicking a fuss when they're not allowed to come in the club because they've got the wrong shoes on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So what you want is a big, scary bloke at the front who's not afraid of anybody and, more importantly, isn't shy about putting someone on their ass mm. if they cause a fuss. But um, that was back then. Today... Bouncers can only use force if it's used against them, officially. Yeah. And they're, tr- they're trained in the correct ways to detain someone in a safe way. But back in the 80s and 90s, your mate Big Al, who can handle himself in a scrap with no real training, he can become a bouncer. It literally was like that. You look like you can handle yourself. And he's like, I'm all right in a fight. Do you want a job? Yeah, all right. And that was it. I mean... I mean, even nowadays, I generally think, even though there is more, like, uh, health and safety and job requirements, it's still pretty much the same, isn't it? Most doormen I come into contact with are pricks. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I have seen quite a lot of doormen. You know, they've got those um, um uh, they've got those armbands with, like, a, a card in it yeah. with their, num- their face and their name pictures and everything like that. I do think a lot of them have to be certified. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and, to, and to be fair, I guess if you had to deal with uh, drunk people all night as well, you'd be a bit short-tempered and not very patient. Yeah. But uh, some of the, some yeah. of them are absolute wankers. Yeah, it's just been knobs for the sake of being knobs. But yeah, maybe they are in just a bad mood. Now, 
these were the types of people that um, were working the doors in clubs and pubs up and down the country, right? Strong men and thugs who were likely in gangs or even football firms. Most of Tony Tucker's men were part of his gang, The Firm. Um, there's a guy called Carton Leach who was part of the uh, ICF, which is the Intercity Firm, which was back in the 80s, West Ham's hooligan firm. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, and those guys were just fucking called mayhem. Uh, I think those guys are what the film Green Street is based off of. I imagine so, yeah. Yeah, they're fucking nightmare. Like, I don't get football hooliganism anyway, but like these are the blokes that you'd be hiring as your doorman because you know they can handle themselves in a fight. Mm. Just, can I just for an aside talk about football hooliganism? You're not football fans. You might enjoy football, but you're not there to watch it. Oh, no, they use it as a catalyst to have fights afterwards. I don't get it. I just don't join get a bike it. Like, you're, paying, like, you're paying a lot of money to just go like fucking Manchester away to just have a fight with some fucking manx in the street. It's you're proper like, really? tribalism. Aye. Anyway, that's, an, that's another thing to talk about one day. Uh, yeah. Now, another perk about being on the door was controlling what went in the clubs, including drugs. Now, what Tucker and his doorman realised was that any old Tom, Dick or Harry were selling their nan's heart pills and aspirin and calling it something else. The firm could control the drugs coming in. And they essentially became the trading standards officers for the clubs. They're like, hey, listen, I'm not having that fucking fanny aspirin over here. I want heroin or nothing at all. And they're like, oh, okay, boss, yeah, no worries. They were only letting in the legit stuff from dealers that they knew, and then they were taking a nice cut of the profits. Yeah. And if the dealer didn't... Yeah, if the dealer don't like it, though, they can fucking hobble off on their broken kneecaps. It's easy. <laughs> <laughs> so shady. Now, yeah, I know, right? It's mad. So... Times this across clubs all over Essex and London, and the firm was beginning to roll it in. And one of Tony Tucker's top men was a guy called Pat Tate. Now, that's the second name we've got so far, well, officially, in terms of the firm. How, like, Southern or Cockney or Essex, whatever, do these names sound to you? Tony Tucker and Pat Tate. I think especially when I say it, it sounds worse. Yeah, they're, they're the most, like, stereotypical East London gangster names you could have. Right, yeah. If you like, if we were, if we were like brainstorming to write a, a book about EastEnders or whatever, you'd be like, right, throw me some names, and I go Tony Tucker, uh, okay, Pat Tate. You'd be like, no, no, listen, this is too easy. No, no, no. Let's think of something a bit more smarter. Yeah. Now, um, as I was saying, Pat Tate is a he's a Basel and local. He, he literally lived like round the corner for where I live now, mm. um, and he was a father to a toddler. He'd spent 10 years of his life in prison for a robbery. Um, this one's quite funny, to be fair, although kind of not. Um, when he, th- th- This is literally what you said, James, where we sort of, we glamorise it and make it like, we we enjoy the... That's the, the word. The bad shit of it. Yeah. It's kind of, like because I'm like, it was kind of funny, but actually it's not. Uh, he was to appear in court um, for a robbery that he'd done. But he actually escaped and got on a motorbike and just fucked off. Like he managed to, like as he was going to get caught, managed to like wrestle himself free, run, and then another bloke in his motorbike came up at the same time, got off it and gave it to him, and then he just fucked off. And then he managed to get himself into Spain, uh, to Marbella, where he sort of hung out for a little while. Mm-hmm. But he got caught when he just crossed the border to Gibraltar, which obviously is technically part of England. Yeah. And they were like, "I know you," <laughs> and then just fucking, they just got him, and what then he an went idiot. to prison. I know. Uh, now, while in prison, 
He can, do you know what it was? He wanted to go to cost cutters. He'd missed the cost. I bet there isn't. I bet there is not a cost cutter in Marbella, but there is one in Gibraltar. Probably. Although, if you look at Gibraltar on a map, like get a map of the world up and like zoom in on Gibraltar, I swear their airport takes up like half the fucking country. It's oh, God, so yeah, it's, small. Yeah, it's like one half of it is the bloody giant rock that it's famous for. Mm. The next third of it is a fucking landing strip, and there's a tiny rut, one little street maybe where everyone lives. Yeah, it's. I have a friend who. Uh, well, we have a friend, Kagan. Yes, yeah, we yeah we Kagan Gibraltar. Lives there, didn't yeah, we? their, their runway literally takes up like the entire. It's crazy. It's so small. Yeah. Now, um, whilst he was in prison, Pat Tate kept up a strict physical regime. This guy was a literal tank. It's said that when this guy stood in the doorway, he actually filled it. He was huge. Uh, And he was supposedly a lovely bloke when in a good mood, but he had a darker side that came out when he was on drugs. He was a prolific steroid abuser as well as class A drugs. And when high on his own supply, he would become a seriously violent thug. Now, another member that we do need to mention is a guy called Craig Rolfe. This guy's a 26-year-old, he's a cocaine addict, and he's a keen golfer. But this guy's got a nasty side. He was suspected of murdering a drug dealer, but I don't think anything came of it. I don't really have much else on Craig Rolfe, because he's a bit of a lowlife, but he needs to be mentioned, because he comes up later. Now, oh, okay. Tony, Tucker, Tony Tucker and Pat Tate and others in the firm weren't that stupid. I mean, they were, but they weren't that stupid. They knew to keep their hands clean when it came to the drugs. They never dealt themselves, they just allowed dealers in and took a cut of the money made from selling things like ecstasy. And they also charged security from most of the nightclubs that they worked for. So, if a club didn't want to pay for this extra security, well, maybe the doormen just disappear one night and a group of lads come in and smash the place up. Mm. They were basically extorting them. Um, Which is funny, because... I can just imagine going up to the manager's office and be like, hello, boss. Um, so you know you pay me to do security at the door? Yes. Right, well, I need you to pay me three times that for just security in general. And it's like, but, but that, I already pay you for that. It's like, well, now you pay me more for it. Otherwise, I'm going to smash the shit out of this joint. It's like, oh, fuck. What are you going to do? Yeah, it's proper. It's literally like proper gangster shit, that, isn't it? They just stroll into businesses and be like, we can look after you. But we have to have a cut, otherwise we're the danger to you. Like we'll protect you from our us, if you know what I mean. Oh yeah, they literally do see themselves as being gangsters, but yeah. like they're not. Some they're not quite on the level of the craze. They're they're this new generation of gangster. Yeah. Where they're like, you know, weird. I don't know. It's hard to describe. Trying to find that. Anyway. Feet. Yeah. Now with all this newfound wealth, they began to buy up new houses, designer clothes, and fast cars. But the problem with dealing drugs at clubs is that you can't have a sign in the corner of the room saying, drugs on sale here. (laughs) So the only way to let people know about what you're selling is by talking to as many people as possible and asking if they want anything. But that increases the risk of being caught. And the firm wasn't about losing their new lifestyle. Instead, they began to start importing drugs from Holland. Now, funny enough, Importing drugs from Holland um, seems to be like a you know like a, a classical thing of like the eighties and nineties or whatever. But mm. I know of there's a guy called Sean Atwood on YouTube. This guy. Why is have a, I heard that name? Yeah, this guy is an author. 
uh, he spent, uh, I think, eight years in uh, a prison in Arizona, Arizona State Prison, as a drug mm. lord and a kingpin. And this guy's from England, but went over to America as a, as a kingpin drug lord and got caught. Uh, this guy was getting ecstasy from Holland, and this was in like the late nineties, two thousands. So th- there's a there's something going on over there. I mean, they're very lenient with their drug laws over there, aren't they? True. Now, with Essex having the second biggest coastline of any county in the UK, which we're rather proud of, I must say, it is the perfect backdoor to get into England. And the firm was rolling it in. But that took a turn for the worse in 1995, when 18-year-old Leah Betts, on a night out at Raquel's, took an ecstasy pill and ended up in a coma. It caused... Um, Go on. Don't do drugs, kids. I mean, it's rather easy, isn't it? Just... Don't do ecstasy from some twat in a fucking dodgy bar in Basildon. Mm. Yeah. There's a thing to be said about, you know, uh, the correct legalisation of certain drugs. And it's like, don't buy it off some bloke who ain't brushed his teeth in five days and has got fucking chip fat oil in his hair holding it back. Go to like a, have a legitimate place to buy that stuff if that's what you want. Do you know what I mean? Take Take the danger out of it. Anyway, that uh, the, the, the coma of Leah Betts caused nationwide attention on the nightclub scene and the rampant drug use that was going on in it. Police were starting to crack down on clubs. They were showing up with leaflets and trying to educate partygoers about drug use. You know those SOS buses that you'd see outside nightclubs all the time? I haven't seen them, I mean, obviously with the pandemic, but even before then, I haven't seen them in a very long time. No, well, they're, they're always around buzzing in nightclubs. They're always there. Mm. Um and yeah, they're always busy. There's loads of people always in them, and they're always trying to educate people about drugs and it's condoms. Because people are f- fucking idiots. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair to say, and especially in Basel, that's probably why I'm seeing a lot of it. I think I, when I was in uni, I saw like one once. But everyone in Bournemouth was generally quite well. Well, I was well behaved. There was a a large amount of drugs, but everyone, really? I don't know, were good at taking them. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway. The firm, uh, well, the firm was losing money, not only because they couldn't shift their gear with police being all over the place, but from those who actually owed them money. Um, With the police being there, they couldn't sell drugs, they can't make money, they can't give it to the firm. So instead, they started to threaten anyone who owed them money uh, and tried to squeeze anything out of them, but it inadvertently made enemies of the wrong people. One bloke that they crossed was a guy called Steve Nipper Ellis. I have issues with Steve Nipper Ellis. I'm not entirely sure I want to air them. <laughs> but anyway, he was a friend. <laughs> he was a friend of Pat Tate and the boys in the firm generally. But when he called out Tate for being a junkie, because Pat Tate was getting high on his own supply a lot, uh, whenever he got so high, he started turning into an absolute monster. So Steve Nipper Ellis, trying to you know calm his friend Dan for, oh no, I'll use the whole cruel to be kind stuff was calling him a mm-hmm. junkie. He said, you're nothing more than a fucking junkie. You want to sort your fucking life out. You're a worthless piece of shit. You're fucking junkie. All this kind of stuff, right? He turns up, he's on a quite a few documentaries about this era and he he's very proud of the fact that he called Pat Tate a junkie. It's like, all right, fucking nipper. All right, calm down, lad. <laughs> anyway, because he called Pat Tate a junkie and it didn't go the right way, he's now a marked man. Pat Tate mm. and others of the firm, they actually went to Ellis's parents' house and... Uh, 
claiming that they were going to kidnap his teenage sister and cut off her fingers if they couldn't get hold of Nipper Ellis, right? That's gross. Yeah. So Nipper Ellis made himself known, and what they did is they went to his house, they pinned him down to his bed, and they put a pistol to his head, threatening him. And they were high as fuck when they went in there, so they had no real idea what they were doing. Then a machete was brought out, and Pat Tate asked him, which would you prefer to lose, your hands or your feet? Now, Ellis held out his... Yeah. Ellis held out his right hand and was prepared to lose it. He fully was like, take it. Because his thought process was this. And this is a quote, right? Quote, if you take my foot, I can't chase after you. I'm left-handed, so if you take my right hand, I can still find you and shoot you. (laughs) Instead, the thugs left him... uh, thinking that that scared him shitless and was like, we well, ain't got to do nothing now. He's a little pussy. Da, 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 da. We'll just leave him. So they fucked off. Um, but they hadn't actually scared him enough. You see, Nipper Ellis got himself a pistol and went to the house of Pat Tate and he went to the window where he saw Pat shaving. He smashed the window and then tried to fire the pistol at him. It misfired twice before firing off a round that hit Pat in the arm. And Nipper Ellis hadn't managed to kill him but he vowed that he wouldn't be the, that wouldn't be the only chance he'd get. He will kill him. But he didn't get to. He ran off like a little scared cat. <laughs> uh, interestingly, Pat Tate fucking legged it after him. He's been shot in the arm and he just fucking chased him. Like I'm telling you, this guy is an absolute tank. He's massive. Yeah, and he hard chased him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he chased him down the street. He was like, you fucking get back here, you cunt. Uh, and then like, <laughs> called the old Bill. He was like, I've been shot, I've been shot. And he went to Bazard and Hospital, like my local hospital, and was just like sat there. He had a he had a pistol under his pillow, and he want he put the word out for Nipparellis to come speak to him to call it quits, basically being like, "Oh, mm. I threatened you once, and you got your own back. Let's call it quits." And the idea was that he was going to then shoot Nipparellis in the hospital, and it's like, yeah, brilliant place to do it. Not only is he what? like, yeah, he he wanted to shoot Nipparellis whilst he was in his hospital bed, but it's like not I only mean, not only are you going to get caught immediately. Nipparellis is likely to survive because he's in the best place. Uh, unless you pop him in the head. I suppose he can't get out while he's there. Well, it turns out uh, a nurse came to uh, check, uh, basically redo his bed, like uh, fresh sheets and all that, and she found the gun. Uh-huh. And then uh, because of that, Pat broke his probation and went back to prison for a little bit. Yeah. Yep. Now, two other men that the firm pissed off were Mick Steele and Jack Wombs, two smugglers who had got into a disagreement with the firm when a shipment of drugs that they brought in turned out to be a bad batch. Because of this, the firm lost a fuck ton of money, and feeling the pressure with police crackdowns, they were likely to kill them to get their own back. But to save themselves, Wombs and Steele set the firm, uh, set, let the firm in on a new shipment of cocaine that they expected to be coming in. Uh, and when they sold that, they were like, listen, this is going to set you up for life if this all goes to plan. Are you in or are you out? Because if you're not, fuck it, get your revenge. But if you're, if you're in, listen, let's call it quits. We'll be, we'll be set men for the rest of our lives. And Tony Tucker mm. and Pat Tate, they saw pound signs and they just were like, yep, fuck it, do it, we're in. Now, on December 6th, 1995, Pat Tate, Tony Tucker and Craig Rolfe in a blue Range Rover, drove to a country lane outside a farm in Rettenden, Essex, at around 6pm, with either mm-hmm. Mick Steele or Jack Wombs also in the car directing them. When they approached a locked gate, 
still or ones got out of the car to open the gate. Then a gunman with a shotgun came out from the bushes and shot Craig Rolfe point blank in the head, killing him instantly. It was so sudden and unexpected, Craig Rolfe's hands were still stuck to the steering wheel and his foot was still planted on the brake. That's oh, how shit. quick. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's a fucking image and I've seen the crime scene photos and they are just on that steering wheel. It's, it's an mm. image, man. Tony Tucker was then shot in the side of the face, blasting his cheek and jaw wide open. But he's still alive at this point. I don't know how he's taken that. He's took a shotgun blast to the face and he's still alive. Mm. And Pat Tate is shot in the gut and then again in the face, killing him. Tony Tucker is the last to be killed when he's shot again, but this time in the head. Then the gunman, or man, just leaves the site. The next morning, they're discovered by the farmers, where our story began. So, I mean, it's pretty hideous. I mean, I mean, I suppose it's a quick way to die. Oh yeah, it's brutal. I mean, I've seen the crime scene photos, and it's brutal what a shotgun can oh, do I to someone's face. I imagine it was a face. mess, like brains everywhere. Uh, do you know what? Surprisingly, their heads have not blown up. They've just got massive holes in them. And like uh, Tony Tucker... I don't know if that's worse. Tony Tucker obviously got shot in the face and his jaw was all smashed to fuck. His teeth were just like everywhere in his face. Mm, lovely. Oh, mad. So who did it is the question. Um, that is the question. Yeah, who did it? One guy was asked who he thought uh, it was and his answer was this, quote... Well, open the Essex phone book and put your finger in. Everyone in there has got a reason. <laughs> I, I suppose, yeah. I mean, fair. They've pissed off a lot of people. And oh, yeah. Oh, it'll be so difficult to track this person down. What year was this again, sorry? This is 1995. I was two years okay, old. Okay, so the DNA database is up and running at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Now, hmm. there, were, there were many theories thrown up. One was that a professional, uh, that it was a professional hit by the police. Um, they were they were fed up with dealing with the firm, and it would have benefited them to be gone. But it, it I mean, it does seem unlikely that the police murdered three of the most notorious gangsters in Essex. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, could it have been Nipper Ellis? Because he tried to kill Pat Tate once before, shooting him in the arm. Remember? Mm-hmm. Now he claims it wasn't him, although he does say he was in the area at the time. This is in an in, this is in a documentary, right? They're like, "Where were you? Who did it? Where were you?" And he's like, "Oh, it weren't me. I was in the area though." And he's smiling like a right twat. And you think, "What are you trying to get at?" He reckons he so was. So for some reason, I get the feeling that it wasn't him. Oh, absolutely. Do you know what? It's not him. I am adamant it's not him. Uh, yeah. But this is the thing, right? So he says he was in the area stealing a car or something stupid like that. But he does also claim that he knows who it was, but he just won't say anything. And you're like, fuck off, you just want to get a bit of attention. I mean, yeah, he's probably loving it, isn't he? Yeah, he's lapping it up. He's like, oh yeah, I shot Pat Tate once, and I know who killed him, and I'm not telling you. And it's like, well, I can't prove you wrong, so I just have to take your word for it. In the yeah, meantime, it's criminals, they love fucking around the justice system, don't they? Exactly. In the meantime, he's just popping up on documentaries, getting paid, and he's like, yeah, fucking yeah. easy money. If I, if I tell him that... If I didn't know who it was, they wouldn't bring me on, which he mm. doesn't. Now, another theory is that it was a rival gang. See, Pat Tate actually owed a lot of money and was defaulting on his loans, but it's it's a random throw of the dice, that one. So instead, it actually took six months for the police to come up with a lead. 
an informant called Darren Nichols, who claims to have been the getaway driver, gave them the names of Mick Steele and Jack Wombs as the shooters. The promise of a life-changing shipment of drugs was actually a ruse to kill the lads. They were sentenced to life imprisonment. Now, they've always stated that they were innocent and have made numerous attempts to overturn their conviction, but to no avail. Mm. Um, even the people in the underworld don't seem to believe that they were involved. They're like, they weren't them. It makes no sense, all this, that, the other. But it's like, I don't know. I just think it's that whole wall of science. No one wants to grass each other up. They don't want to be a grass. They don't want to be a snake. Like. No, absolutely. Even to your biggest enemy, you wouldn't grass them. Exactly. Um, but yeah. The guy, uh, Nichols, who uh, did grass on them, uh, he got a new life, he got a new name, uh, put in mm-hmm. witness protection, all that jazz, but uh, everyone's like, the reason for the main, the main reason no one believes that it was Mick Steele and Jack Wombs is because Nichols is a self-confessed liar, and he's very untrustworthy, and they're like, the, the fucker's a liar don't believe him this that the other it weren't him it weren't him I mean it is difficult when like your only witnesses and leads and stuff are other criminals yeah exactly <laughs> it's difficult Um, so yeah as I said they were sentenced to life imprisonment but that was back in 1997 when the trial happened so mm. Jack, Jack Wombs his parole board actually approved him for release in this year so he should be getting out either this year or next year oh okay he'll be out for vengeance he will be well, yeah, yeah. He'll have to find Nichols, but no one knows where he is. Apparently, he's still he's dealing drugs again now. He's out on the streets, but I don't know about that. Now, since then, Essex has cleaned up its image somewhat. It's not so much known for its violent thugs now. It's more uh, uh, Essex fucking right boy racers, skinny jeans, designer gear, and heavy, heavy Botox. Kind of like uh, how, you know, Chihuahuas are descendants of wolves. And you're like, how did that happen? Yeah. That's like Essex now. And you look at like, Essex in the 80s and 90s with like the firm and all these hard blokes. And you think, how did we get to this point? Like people like me. And you think, ah. I'm a little bit lost with this all, to be fair. I won't Go lie on. to you. Go on. I'm sure there's loads of other listeners that are lost as well. There's so many names flying around. Yeah, and I'm in my in my head. I'm trying to work out who would do it. <laughs> well, but I can't. Yeah, see, the thing is, these guys that have been arrested for it, and uh, Jack Worms, who is out very very soon, they have every reason to do it. So they fucked up a shipment of drugs, and the the firm are like really really severely pissed off with them, uh, and now. With their reputation, it's likely they would have killed them. But what they've done is kind of come up with a lie to say, look, we've got a new shipment coming in that could make us set for life. All we have to do is go collect it. And instead, they took them to a country lane and just shot the shit out of them. So they do have a motive. So, mm. hmm. I need to watch these documentaries. Oh, absolutely. I do advise anyone go check it out. I'll be honest with you. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, the people themselves not that fucking interesting. The only thing that's interesting is that they fucking died. Um, but the documentaries are... Yeah, they're worth looking into. Now, the story of the Essex boys now lives on in the media with books written by those who were in the firm and in films like Essex Boys and Rise of the Foot Soldier. They're terrible films that try to glamorise, let's be honest, not very interesting people. 
Now, most of those who were around then do still live in Basildon and the surrounding areas. And like those who tried to jump on the backs of the craze to make themselves sound more interesting, many a local recall knowing people like Pat Tate, Tony Tucker, Craig Wolf, people like Carlton Leach, who I mentioned earlier, who by all accounts seems to have had a very loose connection to the firm. And yet there's a whole film about how he supposedly was with all of them all the time and he's very much a right-hand man of them. And it's like, were you... Or is it just a film? Either way, the story is a local legend for Essex people. We all know the story and we all know the names. And that is that is the story of the Rettendon murders. The, the Essex boys, as it were. I... Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of information, wasn't it? A lot went on there. Yeah. There was drugs. There was people being shot in the head. There was people being shot in the arm. There was someone willing to give up their hand. Yeah. Um... The craze got mentioned. Yeah, see, this is the thing about the Essex boys. In that, it's one of those like I said, like I said earlier, as I was trying to sort of not undersell the episode, uh, which I didn't do. Um, the the Essex boys themselves are not that fucking interesting. They're just drug dealers. They think them. Yeah. They think that they think themselves a really big gang that is like rivals the Cray twins, but they're not. Mm. They're just they're just drug. Uh, not even drug dealers they're they're procu- procurers of drugs who then send uh-huh. out dealers and they rake in the money that's all they do yeah and actually on a day-to-day basis they don't do anything they just sit around there were people that are like um they'd, they'd claim to be like they work in marketing they'd make up bullshit titles for themselves like oh yeah i work in marketing and yet neighbors would be like well he doesn't leave the house till 12 o'clock and as far as we've seen him <laughs> in town he only goes to the bookies for a couple of hours and then he fucks off back home again you know like mm. They don't actually do nothing. They're not that interesting people. They just their their things happen at night, and they only work for a couple of hours at night, just taking in the money, standing on a door, and then now and then beating someone up. They're not people like that. Aren't that interesting? No. Um. Yeah, so they're yeah. fucking everywhere. Those kind of people. Oh Christ! Yeah, I mean, like I say, it's easy money. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wouldn't recommend it. That's the story of the Redden murders. I do recommend you check in on it because. Um, as I said, although two people were convicted of the murders, there's a lot of people that, one, don't believe it and think that it was uh, a fuck-up. So there's quite a few like uh, channels on YouTube and Reddit pages that are like, dedicated to trying to decipher what actually happened that night. So yeah. if you are interested at all, do check it out. Do look into it uh, and then see what you think as well because I'm just going with what uh, the Supergrass Nichols his story this is how it went but some people don't believe him um, because they think he's an absolute liar so you know find your own narrative i mean is it really sadistic that i really want to look up the crime scene photos uh if you want to just go on reddit and they've got all of them including um autopsy shot uh, pictures and whatnot beautiful oh yes in fact i, mean, uh, I probably will yeah I, I mean i have um and the image that I will be using for social media will be an image from those crime scene pictures. However, it will be blurred for those because the the lads are still in the car, but it's the only good, good, good picture of the car. That's like HD quality. So I need to blur the guys out in the car. Otherwise you'd be seeing dead people. I mean, I've seen dead people. I'm okay with seeing more dead people. Yeah, but it's not six cents. Ain't Bruce Willis somewhere. (laughs) Anyway, 
I hope you found that interesting. I hope you've stuck with me because I know I've done a couple of these episodes where I throw a lot of names at us. Uh, and I know it can be hard to keep track of, but do check it out. Do have a little quick Google. Uh, make sure you check the social media because it will show pictures of uh, the guy, the three guys that were murdered. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, make sure you follow us on all the socials. Uh, make sure you check out the merch store, www.twpd.store, where you can uh, show off to your friends your favourite podcast. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so on our Ko-fi page. There is a link to that in our socials and in this episode description. And um, yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, the next episode, it will be in two weeks. We are talking about Julius Caesar. Which we've already recorded. It's really good because I did it. So it's great. Excellent. So yeah, uh, look forward to that. We'll be talking about Julius Caesar, the first emperor of Rome. No. <laughs> He fucking wasn't. <laughs> he was not an emperor. And you will find out uh, why he wasn't an emperor on the next episode. So join us then. Thank you very much for listening, guys. We will see you then. Farewell. <laughs>